0: This is Dwelling, Homeward Bounds Podcast focusing on homelessness and homelessness solutions in Asheville. I'm your host Bellamy Crawford. Dwelling is sponsored by Home Trust Bank. Home Trust Bank, ready for what's next.
1: When people say got homeless, uh, it otherizes an entire group of people, uh, as opposed to people experiencing homelessness, in which case the common trait that we have is that we are people serving people.
0: That was Ian DeYoung, internationally recognized expert on homelessness.
1: We in fact are imperfect people serving imperfect people. And maybe if we leaned into acknowledging our own imperfections, we'd be able to meet other people where they're at a lot better in a less judgmental way.
0: DeYoung has worked for nonprofits, government, and the private sector on homelessness issues for more than two decades.
1: I have been in the field of responding to homelessness in various facets since the 1990s. Started in more of a community development approach, and in particular, engaging with people who had experienced long-term hospitalization because of severe and persistent mental health issues, and during a phase of deinstitutionalization, found themselves in community without supports. Fast forward a few years, uh, doing policy development work in homelessness and housing, and then in my time of direct service, leading a very large street outreach program uh, in one of uh, North America's largest cities, 24-7 operation, really trying to engage the people living in encampments, sleeping rough, in bypassing the shelter system where applicable to try to provide access to housing with supports.
0: Let me interrupt for a moment and say a few words about why Ian would mention wanting to bypass the shelter system. While emergency shelters and transitional housing programs are important components to an overall homelessness solution, these are not long-term answers. Research has found that many shelters and transitional housing programs require room sharing, and many have curfews or other rules that make them unappealing at best and inaccessible at worst to people experiencing homelessness. For example, contrary to popular belief, many individuals experiencing homelessness have jobs, and some work night shifts, rendering shelter curfews a barrier to obtaining a bed. Many shelters are segregated by gender, often separating mothers from their sons and fathers from daughters, and many shelters require sobriety and even a heterosexual or heteronormative gender identity to be eligible for shelter. Under these circumstances, the logical or only choice for many people experiencing homelessness would be to remain outside of the shelter system.
1: Starting in 2009, I entered into the space of consulting. I joined Org Code Consulting, was an existing firm, and within a few years uh, became the sole owner of Org Code Consulting. We work uh, predominantly throughout Canada and the United States. The focus of our attention is really trying to help communities and organizations make homelessness rare, and if it does occur, ensure that it's brief and non-recurring providing training and technical assistance to service providers, and then a fair amount of work trying to change the narrative around homelessness, working with large national organizations and elected officials to help people better understand what are the evidence-informed and evidence-based approaches to responding to homelessness? How do you take that to scale? How do you ensure that you're investing In outcomes as opposed to just outputs? How do we track and measure our progress in working towards ending homelessness? And how do we make sure that we never lose sight of that individual couple or family that's at the center of all the work that we do?
0: I asked Ian what first inspired him to get involved in the mission of ending homelessness and what sustains his commitment to that mission now that he's been in the field for several decades.
1: A lot of my focus of attention originally was going to be on affordable housing and found that there was a huge disconnect between who people wanted to develop affordable housing for and who actually needed deeply affordable housing. What really emerged in my life at that time was this tension between a deserving and undeserving group of people when it came to housing needs. And that seemed completely unjust to me. So one of the, you know, uh, kind of watershed moments of my life. Being in grad school, uh, working with the late, great Dr. Jerry Daly, um, who wrote a great book on homelessness.
0: Gerald Daly's book is titled Homeless, Policies, Strategies, and Lives on the Street. In the book, Daly discusses the failure of emergency shelters and food banks, the cutbacks in social programs, and the severe shortage of affordable housing, all as contributing factors to homelessness. He also argues that the category of homelessness must be broadened to encompass not only those who are chronically without shelter, but also those who are at immediate risk of losing their homes.
1: Dr. Jerry Daly, really inspirational to me, but there was a very large tent city and he essentially said, you know i want you to go and talk to people in the tent city and i want you to do a comparison between what they say their needs are and what the municipality is saying the response is going to be and critique it and i think what that really illuminated to me was if we're not engaged with people who are experts in their own lives meaning people experiencing homelessness there will be this disconnect and this constant projection of either a bureaucratic or a charity-driven response to homelessness that isn't necessarily aligned with specific needs of people. And I really credit, you know, some uh, years I had in the early 2000s. A developing, growing, designing a very large street outreach program to essentially say, this is the population that people say is unhousable, service resistant. They've been barred from every service in town. They've been told that they're you know too mentally ill to get substance use treatment and they're too heavily involved in substance use treatment to get assistance with their mental illness. Like They're trapped in all these spaces. They're told you know by the courts to get a job and to get housing, but they're also told by housing that because of their past criminal history, they don't qualify. I mean, all these sorts of things just continued on. But I'm going to tell you that housing is going to be a solution for people in shelters and the people who are unsheltered. And so if we're not focused on solutions, what are we focused on? And so putting people at the center of that conversation changes the nature of the relationship. Kind of feelings about the future. I think there's uh, something there that really resonates with me. The, The sense of community. Um, And how people find mutual aid and support in society, I think, fits into a broader narrative around homelessness and how we go about responding.
0: Ian has studied homelessness solutions all over the world. When I asked him what he noticed about the different approaches or strategies in ending homelessness across the globe, this is what he said.
1: You know, on the one hand, homelessness has got so many similarities no matter where you go in the world, especially to the developed world. But on the other hand, the policy framework and how we think about social safety nets and how we think about public expenditures uh, in addressing housing needs is really quite different. So, for example, people will often point to Finland and say, well, Finland has brought housing first to scale and look at all the wonderful things they've done. And there are parts of that that are absolutely true, except the culture of Finland is not directly importable to every single other country. I mean, there's a long standing history of the type of social investment and uh, kind of mutuality that exists in a country like Finland that isn't found in other places.
0: For The Dwelling Podcast, I like to ask a lot of the folks that I interview what they consider the most important myths surrounding homelessness. I was curious what Ian's takes would be.
1: You know, homelessness is the absence of an address. That, that's it. And it's pretty binary in that regard. So, yes, most people experiencing homelessness are economically poor, but most economically poor people don't experience homelessness. Or people think, you know, um, mental illness and substance use uh, in particular is like this massive driver of homelessness. And yeah, there is a disproportionate number of people experiencing homelessness who use alcohol or other drugs. And there's a disproportionate number of people experiencing homelessness living with mental illness and... There's also a huge number of people that experience either or both of those in are housed. Uh, so what do we learn from people who don't experience homelessness is sometimes just as important from what we're learning about people that are experiencing homelessness. In
0: 2021, Homeward Bound purchased a motel on Tunnel Road in order to convert 85 rooms into efficiency apartments for people in our community experiencing chronic homelessness. Homeward Bound's Home is Key Motel Conversion Project will use the national best practice of permanent supportive housing to ensure the success of the residents who move in. Permanent supportive housing is a very important concept underneath Homeward Bound's Home is Key Motel Conversion. I wanted to hear, in Ian's own words, what permanent supportive housing is and why it's important.
1: Permanent supportive housing is a necessary ingredient in any system of care that responds to the needs of people experiencing homelessness, especially chronic homelessness, full stop. Permanent supportive housing for me is a hopeful way of seeing the potential in people to help people achieve the greatest amount of independence possible, to be the best versions of themselves outside of that emergency context. So they're not worrying about, do I have a bed tonight? Where am I going to get meals today? Uh, if I have to sleep outside where it's the safest place, that'll be least uh, interrupted by others and safest, et cetera. And instead of giving people the safety and security of tenure, uh, while also providing those supports. In that space, we have the opportunity to do some other things in like site-based permanent sportive housing, like a motel or hotel conversion, such as creating community working to establish meaningful daily activities for residents to continue to participate in, to create opportunities of mutual aid across tenants supporting each other, to provide staffing that is both direct and targeted towards trying to help people achieve specific goals as well as the informal, but equally if not more necessary function of staff, which is to be that listening ear at times to be there when someone has a time of need or crisis to help people navigate resources when they get frustrated.
0: Homeward Bound's Homeless Key Motel Conversion will offer extensive supportive services, including on-site case management tailored to each resident's needs, 24-7 support staff, behavioral health services, social and educational activities, meals provided by community partners, job training, a medical clinic, and more.
1: The other really important part about permanent supportive housing is it is less costly to house and support people than it is to maintain people in their homelessness. And so if we look at the relative costs of an emergency response, which is absolutely necessary but quite expensive, compared to a permanent solution that comes with ongoing supports, it is less costly when we don't have people going in and out of incarceration, in and out of ERs, and those sorts of things, all of which decreases quite a bit when people move into permanent supportive housing.
0: Finally, as Homeward Bound prepares to open its doors to our motel conversion initiative in the spring of next year, I was curious if Ian knew of any mistakes made by other organizations embarking on similar projects. I hoped he might have some advice for us just starting out.
1: We continue to see communities invest in stuff that doesn't work, but it feels good um and so i think we need to probably put a finer point on what sorts of outcomes we want uh, from our different investments as opposed to just we serve lots of people uh and so trying to get to an outcome orientation as opposed to an output orientation and i think that you know the other big mistake that's made in communities is, is we down involved involve people with lived experience in conversations around policies, programs, and evaluation uh, that impacts their lives. So I think that has to be taken care of. I think that we do need to provide different lenses to the work, gender lens, lens of age, lens of race, lens of uh, economic participation, those sorts of things I think are all important. So we need to look at the issues from more than one lens. I think if we're going to have a truly holistic response... You fast forward to working through the growing pains, the lease up pains, the figuring out processes or protocols where you didn't even know you needed one to get going in permanent supportive housing, and you fast forward. And you fast forward, I'll even say a few years, and communities start to wonder, how did we ever live without this resource at this scale? And what have we learned that we can replicate to better serve even more people who need permanent supportive housing? And yes, we did a great job dramatically reducing chronic homelessness because we had this, you know, density of units that came on board at approximately the same time. And guess what? We still have other people experiencing chronic homelessness. So what's next? And so I always say when when organizations get going with more permanent supportive housing, absolutely tip my hat and you are meeting a specific community need. Don't ever doubt that even in the tough times and take everything you've learned and continuously improve for the next permanent supportive housing opportunity. Don't ever just embrace the one and done or it's really hard and we're not going to do more. Take like a scale like this in terms of your new building and really seize it, embrace it as the opportunity to say, this is the launch of the next phases in permanent supportive housing not just uh, the project and that all chronic homelessness uh, is going to suddenly be resolved forever for the people that you're serving. um, We are offering a tremendous opportunity and it'll scare the bejesus out of some people that we're serving. Like the thought of having four walls, the thought of having privacy, will feel like isolation or, you know, they may have a home, but they still feel stigmatization or discrimination or racism or ageism or ableism in the community. Like some of those other feelings don't go away. Change is really hard and people think housing is a gift. What people are accepting when they accept housing first is to do a ton of work. Uh, on themselves, on their housing, on their skills development. And so it's not a gift. It's an invitation to work your butt off. The key to success in our work is going to be the tenacity it takes to innovate, to get better results for people, to speak uh, in, in meaningful ways with service providers and organizations around what is possible as opposed to focusing on what is impossible and to really keep organizations and frontline staff in particular focused on what does it mean to meet people where they're at what does it mean to journey with people towards housing what does it mean to celebrate with empathy when we've achieved certain milestones and how do we prepare the next generation of leaders in the space to ensure that they can improve upon the work that we've done so there's no sacred cows uh and that they can Uh, challenge uh, some of the thinking and assumptions that we've made, but in the spirit of continuous improvement, as opposed to just, you know, throwing an entire approach and decades of work that have been done uh, in the sector to focus on housing out the window. I mean, I really think the answer exists in uh, iteration of our work, and that's what continues to drive more of my hopefulness these days.
0: To learn more about Homeward Bound's motel conversion, or to make a contribution to the Home is Key Capital Campaign, visit homewardboundwnc.org. Thank you so much to Ian DeYoung for taking the time to talk with me and for all of his important work in the field of ending homelessness. To learn more about Ian's work, to read his popular blog, or to learn about his book titled The Book on Ending Homelessness, visit org. CODE.com Dwelling is sponsored by Home Trust Bank. Home Trust Bank, ready for what's next. Until next time, take care of yourselves so we can take better care of each other. Thank you for listening.